I'm Chef Pete Gagan from Cargill, and we're in the kitchen with Sterling Silver Premium Meats. It's a podcast where we'll be serving up insights and perspectives for chefs and food service professionals. And of course, we'll be digging into the world of premium beef, because even with over 30 years of culinary experience, I still have an appetite for learning more. I hope you're hungry too. This is part one of a two-part episode. Be sure to subscribe so you won't miss part two. Just follow the directions at the end to get every episode. We're coming to you from the Cargill Innovation Center in Wichita, Kansas. And today on the podcast, we have Chef Janet Bourbon, who's going to talk about growing up in the industry. And she's going to offer up some great insight for culinary professionals, including the pros and cons of different jobs and considerations for structuring your career. As a bit of background, Chef Janet is a senior research chef here at Cargill. A native Canadian, her culinary career goes all the way back to high school when she opened up a small catering business with her sister. After getting an art history degree, she attended the culinary arts program at George Brown College in Toronto. She moved to Texas in 1987, taking positions at the Adolphus Hotel, corporate food service at Neiman Marcus, along with corporate chef positions at Steak and Ale Restaurants, Tyson Foods, and Meyer Natural Angus. She's joining us today from her home in Wichita, Kansas. Welcome into the kitchen, chef. Well, thank you. Uh, That was quite the introduction. (laughs) No pressure. (laughs) No, none at all. Is there anything else you'd like to add to the introduction about yourself that maybe I didn't bring up? Really, the only thing I thought of was that I love to eat. But beyond that, you definitely hit some of the career highlights. So wow. I think we're we're good to dive in. So your background is awesome, and that's why we chose you for this. It's spanned a long time, right? Uh, and we, talk, <laughs> yeah, we talked about yeah. that. I, I won't mention the, the exact uh, numbers here, but... Uh, a couple of decades. Been, yeah, you've been in this industry for a long time, and, and I'll tell you, it's amazing to hear your stories, and uh, I just would love for the listeners to hear a little bit about yourself, too, and, and there's probably many listeners that can relate to a lot of the things we talk about. I'll just get right into it. You know, you your background's really, like so much love around food and creativity. Let's just get down to why you got into this career. Well, some of my earliest memories are about food and I love to eat. And I started cooking when I was about 10 with making the recipe on the back of the bag of Nestle Toll House chocolate chips. And Mm. it just kind of slowly went from there. And I think like a lot of people I know, I began cooking with small things and it got me praise usually and attention. And who doesn't like that? Plus bonus, you get to eat. So it kind of started from there and it just kept building. Like you said, my sister and I had a small catering business in high school, which was more lucrative than my other gig, babysitting and a lot more fun. (laughs) And I think the a couple things happened. Um, I was at a family reunion and I met a cousin who was a chef slash caterer in London doing this for a living. And I know this sounds really naive, but it never occurred to me that you could cook for a living. I didn't know anyone that did that. You know, friends of my parents all had boring, quote, grown-up jobs. So that was an epiphany. And then that same summer, I had my first real cooking job in a small cafe. And I just, I kind of had this epiphany of, 
oh my God, this is so much fun. I would do it for free. Oh, don't tell Cargill that, okay? (laughs) (laughs) Although I still have flashes of that. Honestly, I do. (laughs) When we're doing some of our, you know, events and everything's clicking. And I have to say, I work with a great set of people. So I still have flashes of that. I mean, when you think about it, you're like, oh, I can do this for free. That spells it all out right there. This is like a career for you. I mean, this is love. And if you're willing to do it and not get paid for it, I I don't know what else would make someone do that. I feel really lucky. And I know it's a cliche. Oh, you know, do what you love and the rest will come. Whatever. Um, (laughs) I just, I am very fortunate in that I get a real charge out of what I do in all the different aspects. Uh, So, If we go back to those early days, what would you say is one of the best pieces of advice you were given? Okay. Oh, I was going to say I wasn't given any advice because people were too busy shouting at me. But (laughs) also, let the record show, I was in a constant state of terror during my apprenticeship. But I think the, the piece that sticks with me was from a British sous chef, Nicola, who said, Roy, there's only three things you say to the chef. And I was like, okay. She said, it's yes, chef, no, chef. It won't happen again, chef. Got it? <laughs> and I was just like, yeah, yeah, yes. And I, I mean, I can't overestimate to you how scared I was. at the. T- I mean, it was all so new. I'd been to culinary school, but I hadn't really worked, you know, despite the one... Uh, experience when I was still in school working in the cafe. I hadn't worked in a real restaurant and this was a five-star hotel. And um, yeah, so I spent, you know, about three years being horribly scared, but I survived. Uh, But at least you were getting a paycheck this time, right? Uh, Yeah, I was making a um, very princely $4.26 an hour. So yeah, I was living large. Nice. (laughs) So, um, you know, if we talked about that and, and you being a woman and early on in your career, there is definitely probably some of that, uh, as you call it, an aggressive masculine environment. <laughs> um, but, but you were able to navigate it. And you mentioned to me that there's a reason behind that because of all the fun you always had. What yeah. I love about you, Janet, is that you can take something like that and you're like, oh, this is a challenge. <laughs> I'm not going to get pushed out by these guys and I'm going to make them want to work with me. Unfortunately, some of my best stories fall under the category of not suitable for work. <laughs> <laughs> um, as I'm sure you can understand. But I think one of the reasons that I survived, I was competent, although not brilliant. I had then and still do have a rather irreverent sense of humor coupled with a lot of sarcasm. And I've been told that I'm a bit of a smart ass. So all of those things together meant that instead of bursting into tears or having hurt feelings, I just would kind of respond in kind and You know, honestly, those guys ended up being 
Like I had a whole crew of brothers, but they first had to test you a little bit, right? And see sure. how much can she take? What's she going to do if I do this? Now, what will she do if I say this? And <laughs> when they learned that it didn't rattle me, it just made me laugh. Everything got really comfortable, basically, you know, with the exception of those few not suitable for work stories that I referenced earlier. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure we all have those. So we're talking mid 80s now. Yep. So and and again, I said I wasn't going to mention any uh, actual like age or anything, (laughs) but people can do the math. (laughs) Why do you think that timing really matters in in the story of, of Janet's career? You know, if it had been 10 years earlier or, or 10 years later, why the mid-80s? I think that it was important because cooking and culinary and the whole chef mystique were just coming into their own in the early to mid-80s. Because when I was in high school and planning to go to university and cooking never even crossed my mind, keep in mind there was no food network There were no celebrity chefs. I mean, this was in Canada, but but still, there was not a real, what I would call, food culture. So it was just a different time. But then all of those things started to change in the 80s. So through no fault of my own, it was just luck. I happened to arrive on the scene at the perfect time when all of a sudden cooking became sexy. And I think I told you this story. This was when I was still an apprentice and I was working at a very good five-star hotel. And Mm -hmm. um, I was actually at a wedding and somebody whom I think was in the finance field, we were just chatting and she said, well, where do you work? I said, oh, I work at the Windsor Arms Hotel. Oh, really? Well, what do you do there? I said, I'm a chef. And she paused and looked at me. And she said, well, a chef, I mean, is that a real job? Or is that just (laughs) something you're doing in between until you get a real job? And I just, and I thought of what I did, you know, and you can relate, right? All the stuff (laughs) that I did every day. And I said, "Um, yeah, it's a real job. And I just mm-hmm. went to get another drink. <laughs> Did you ever have something like that? Uh, in, in a way, yeah. Some girl that I was dating at the time when I was thinking about culinary school and her dad's like, that's not a job that you're going to be able to have a career in and, and, and provide for a family and this, that, and the other thing. And I was like, uh, okay. Like, I think I was 20. I really wasn't I was thinking say, about that you? at the time, you know, but he was wrong. Exactly. (laughs) And so was she, right? (laughs) Yes, she definitely was wrong. What other standout moments early on in your career do you you have, whether it was good, bad, or ugly? One of the standout moments, and you can decide whether it's good, bad, or ugly, is when (laughs) I was probably in the second year of my apprenticeship and I was working at another five-star hotel in Toronto called the King Eddie, King Edward, and I was having what could loosely be called my performance review, which meant I was in the chef's office with the chef and the executive sous chef, and they were just giving me a few pointers. Well, the chef was French, and he spoke no English. 
the executive sous chef had worked in France. He was Canadian and spoke perfect French. So French, the chef would speak, and then the executive sous chef would translate. Now, being Canadian, I had taken French in school. I could understand it reasonably well. Speaking it was more difficult, but, you know, I could certainly understand what the chef was saying because it wasn't terribly complicated. Make sure you keep your workstation clean, that sort of thing. And then we reached the conclusion of my five-minute performance review, and he looked at me, and he looked at the sous chef, and he said, tell her that she does the job as well as a man. This was 1985. Even then, that was a little out of line. And the executive sous chef just kind of froze, and you could see the wheels turning. He was thinking like, oh God, how do I rephrase this so it doesn't sound quite so sexist? But I just, honestly, I kind of laughed. And all I said was, merci, chef. And I (laughs) left the office because I took it the way it was intended. I took it as a compliment because, I mean, what else was I going to do? Try and change a millennia of kitchen culture by throwing a fit? No, I just, I said thank you. And even as I was leaving his office, I thought, oh man, this is going to be such a great story. (laughs) (laughs) And it still is, right? (laughs) It still is, like 30 plus years, right? Any other memories that you think you could share or you'd like to share? They're all happy and fun. I mean, they're, they're, uh, I remember getting to cook for famous people and like now some of whom are no longer famous. Like I'm dating myself here. Remember Billy Idol? Mm-hmm. Yes. And so I would cook for him and definitely several prime ministers. I, the, when I worked at the King Edward, I did the breakfast shift and it was kind of a place for power breakfasts, stuff like that I think of. And I just think of working on the line on Saturday night or doing prep with the radio blaring and everybody singing along with U2 or whatever it was. My memories are very good ones. Um, a lot of hard work. I remember when I first started, we all had to wear those paper chef's hats that would bump into the, the <laughs> you know, the top into of the, the hoods. hood. Yeah. Yes, uh-huh. exactly. And they would get stuck to your face with sweat. <laughs> and then at the end of your service, you just have to like peel them off of your face. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure there's some people still wearing those out there, but uh, I think well, what the about world you? has changed a little. Yeah. Uh, you what know, about you? Same thing. The, those those uh, hats were just, yeah, it's what we wore at the time. And neckerchiefs. Did you have to wear a neckerchief? But, yeah, oh, yeah, we did. It, you know, and, and it was the thing to do. But I do, like you mentioned, love those weekends where it's just, you know, it's crazy busy and, and it still happens. But, you know, prep time and when you get to talk and, and listen to music and, and learn more about those that you work with tell crazy stories and just getting yourself pumped up for service, which, mm-hmm. you know, for those those out there that work in the restaurant industry, you know what we're talking about, right? It's that chaos that happens during a busy night, you know, but it's that controlled chaos that we all thrive on. Adrenaline um, just, junkies, yeah, that's what we are. It is, but also, you know, um, getting, maybe back in the day it didn't happen as much, but, you know, getting to see the smiles on people's faces after they eat the food that we make and, mm-hmm. you know, the good compliments and all, that's that's what drove us. Still Looking does, at right? the clean plates as they came back to the dishwasher. No doubt about that. 
Let's get into a little bit more about some of the different positions you had and uh, how they provided you with unique experiences. We talked about you being Canadian, but you've lived in the States for a very long time. Yeah. So, well, the um, transition of work in Canada and then coming to U.S., can you just tell us a little bit more about the differences that you came across? Well, there was large and small. I mean, for example, all of a sudden I had to go back to thinking in American measurements, not metric anymore. Okay. So uh, that was... And I was working for Stephen Piles, who was kind of a pioneer of Texas cuisine. And there were a lot of ingredients of which I'd never heard. So that was a bit of a learning curve. The kitchen demographics were different. In Toronto, it was primarily Europeans, a lot of Brits. Toronto had a large Portuguese population. We always had a lot of Portuguese waiters and a lot of... Uh, people from Hong Kong. So there was a lot of Cantonese spoken in kitchens. And then I moved down to the States and I used to say, you know, I couldn't understand the Texans, but <laughs> I had to learn kitchen Spanish because okay. yeah, everyone in the kitchen spoke some version, even if it was just Spanglish of Spanish. Mm -hmm. So that was a big differentiator. But I would also say big picture to me, having moved from Canada to the States, kitchen culture, most of the aspects of it are pretty universal. Yeah, I mean, it's you're cooking food and trying to run a restaurant. So I mean, yeah. whether, whether that's in one country or another, there's going to be some differences, but it really comes down to that same idea that mm -hmm. we're, we're all getting out there. Yeah. Whether it's like this one style of food versus the other, it's, it's still the, the same basic principle. Yeah. If there is a like an aha moment in your career. And it might be something that happened, you know, in the last five years, could be 20 years ago. Is there things about that aha moment that could have helped you earlier on? I think so. The one that comes to mind first is something that happened in my current job. And it was feedback that was delivered very professionally, but it was suggested that I be more proactive rather than simply reactive. And that was definitely an aha moment. And I kind of was like, whoa. And I think if I had heard that earlier in my career, I would, I would have taken more risks and I wouldn't have played it safe most of the time. Okay, that yeah. makes sense. I yeah. mean, it's, it's, it's just a different, you know, way to look it, at things. It was. Uh, it, it, it really sort of reframed everything for me. And in retrospect, it was a very helpful piece of advice that would have been useful to have received in the 90s rather than in the teens. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Actually, this will bring me to another question I have. If you had a chance to start this whole journey all over again, what would you do differently? I think the first thing that I would have done would be to have gotten a little more grounding in the business side. I did take that at culinary school, but to be perfectly honest, I didn't pay a whole lot of attention to it because the food part was way more interesting to me. Mm -hmm. So that's one piece of it. And then an, another piece that I would do differently, I would take some kind of marketing. I would, I really wish I had a more solid grounding in marketing. Anything I know 
I have picked up from much smarter people kind of on the fly. But I think that is for what we do now. And honestly, I think for any chef, having a little bit of smattering even of marketing knowledge would be very, very helpful. I'd agree with you on on both those points. And since we're talking about that, that's early in your journey. We mentioned earlier on in in the introduction that you used to have a little bit of a catering business with your sister. (laughs) And I mean, to have a business then, you you had to have a little bit of a business sense, right? And also you had to market your business some way. So thinking back on that, how did that shape up? That kind of evolved. As you may know from just talking to me, I'm not especially strategic and I don't have like a life plan laid out. Never have, (laughs) never will. But it evolved. It really, it started out, my sister and I basically acting as servers and dishwashers for dinner parties. It might be four people, it might be 30 people, but that was what we did. But it became pretty apparent to the people that we were working for that I loved food, I was interested in it, and I would, usually diplomatically, you know, make suggestions on, you know, hey, you know, if you put a little chopped parsley on top of here, uh, that sort of thing. And over time, it evolved from just serving and cleaning up to, Janet, you know, do you think you could make the dessert for this function? And then all of a sudden it became, I'm having 24 people over and I'm wondering if you could cook. (laughs) So as I said, it was a a slow process, but that's how the infamous Riley girls catering (laughs) came to be. Yeah, I mean, you you just, it grew, right? It did, it really did. It wasn't a plan, it just happened, right? Yeah, and that's the story of my life. Maybe if you had that marketing background and that business background back then, then, uh, you know, who knows what it could have turned into. Oh, like I would be running the world, Pete. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's too funny. Chef Janet, your history in the business is so rich and extensive, and there's so much more to talk about. So we're going to take a break here. In part two of this episode, we'll find out what advice Chef Janet would offer to those in this crazy business. Listeners, you'll want to subscribe so you don't miss out when part two of this episode is available. To get the next episode delivered to your inbox, subscribe on our website, sterlingsilvermeats.com. Just sign up for our e-newsletter at the top of the page. You can also subscribe on your favorite podcast platforms. And be sure to follow us at Sterling Silver Premium Meats on Instagram. Until next time, we'll see you in the kitchen with Sterling Silver Premium Meats. <laughs>